0: A-P-U. American Public University is proud to present the Everyday Scholar. Hello, my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we're talking to James Lindvay, philosophy faculty in the School of Arts, Humanities, and Education. And today our conversation is about moral relativism. Welcome, James. Hello, Bjorn. Thanks for having me. Excellent. I love this topic, moral relativism. I know when I was first introduced to it, I didn't quite have the proper understanding of it. But at the same time, I think it's important that people understand it so they don't, say, misuse it or misunderstand it. So my first question is, what is relativism? And why is it something that philosophers and ethicists think about? Well,
1: so the idea is that we need some what we call meta-ethical principles to use as starting points for building moral theories. So you'll see relativism discussed in pretty much every ethics textbook, but it's not necessarily thought of as a theory itself. And a moral theory is typically normative or it's prescriptive. So it's, here's a set of concepts that we use to make decisions. And relativism isn't really meant to do that. It's more descriptive. It's just this sort of observation that we can see that people have different views about morality. It's pretty obvious. Your neighbors and your friends and your family, everybody believes something different. And so the idea is that those perspectives are just relative to those individuals. And that's fine, but in ethics, we really care about what we ought to do, not just what it is that we do. So if we're going to talk about changing behaviors or changing culture or whatever, we need some way to think about what it is that we're changing. So relativism, then, if, if we're going to say that it's normative, if it's something that we're going to be using to prescribe behavior, it tells us that there's no such thing as real absolute morals. They're just relative. They just kind of depend wholly on either the individual or perhaps an individual's culture. Another way to think of it is that it's synonymous with subjective. It's defined by the subject or the experiencer, or the individual cultural perspective or vantage point. So, an example of that, a more specific example, is cultural relativism, which we've talked about before. Uh, in that case, we just look to whatever it is that a culture happens to practice, and we kind of take the position that that set of rules or mores that that group, that culture has, that's moral not just for them, but in general, that's the right thing to do just because that's what they do. And so most philosophers and ethicists have a problem with this going back to David Hume, who introduced what's called Hume's guillotine. And so Hume wanted to kind of cut this coupling of is and ought. So in a real short section of one of his books, he says, we can describe behavior and we can look and see what is the case but we make this strange jump then to what ought to be the case just based on what we're seeing and we ought not to do that and that does happen we still do that we still look at what things we see and we just kind of think well okay then that's the way it should be even though i may not agree with it who are we to say what's right and wrong for other people and so one again it's not really a theory but it's more of a perspective and and one benefit to this perspective of, of relativism is that It promotes tolerance, right? because we're saying there's no objective basis for right and wrong. It's all relative to time and place, basically, and so then we just have to kind of agree to disagree and live with each other, and that would seem to be a very nice thing.
0: And I like at the end where you said it seems to be a nice thing because it is. Accepting other people is one of the, well, foundations you have to do that in a world, in the world in which there's more than two people. We have to get along. And we we see a lot of, well, we observe this behavior, but this group of people ought to be doing this. And so there's so many people that, in my own opinion, they think they know how other people should behave. So why is that an issue? Why is it an issue and why does that create conflict when others, say, point at other people, or even you, you, know, you metaphorically, and say, well, you should behave this way, James. Why is that a problem? Well, it's
1: only a problem because we don't necessarily know who's right. And so we are gonna debate about that. Your prescriptions, your perspective on what I should do is of course gonna differ from mine. And so we have this distinction we make between realism and anti-realism or maybe non-realism. And that's basically the distinction between objective and relative perspectives. So the objective perspective is that there are moral rules that apply to everybody, some of them all the time, no matter what, contrasted with the anti-realist subjective relative viewpoint that there are no absolute moral rules. And we see that there are clearly some moral rules that pertain to everybody all the time. And and we can see that just descriptively, no matter where you go in the world, unjustly killing people, harming people. Lying for the most part, stealing, those kinds of things are just universally seen as wrong. Outside of those few things, though, there's no real set in stone sort of list of objective right and wrong.
0: And I like how you said that, and this does lead to the next question, which is playing off of what you're talking about, is how does it play out in moral judgments that affect culture and society?
1: So, a couple of things. One is when we think about the difference between something being legal and something being moral. And so if we're going to take this relativist position, which as we all have seen, there's a lot of talk about tolerance these days in, in culture, in Western American culture, especially, and where does tolerance come from? It seems to come from this notion that you just can't tell other people what to think and believe. What people do is different and behavior is constrained by law and behavior also begins with our beliefs and our thoughts. So while we can't tell people what to think and believe, we can tell them how to behave. And then, so there's a bit of a disconnect there because there's not much of a difference between our thoughts and our behaviors, except for our conscious will to do the opposite of, of what our you know, instincts are perhaps. So this moral and legal distinction is one question. And then as far as how it affects society and culture, we see a lot of things going on now politically with subcultures, especially within the United States. So if we think about cultural relativism and this notion that we can't really prescribe to other cultures what's right and wrong, because according to this relativist view, there is no such thing as this overarching objective view of right and wrong. How do we criticize one another and not even necessarily in a, in a negative or dogmatic way, but how do we even make any kind of moral progress? If we're not going to accept the fact that there are some things that have to be right and wrong for everybody.
0: And I like that. Yeah. And I completely agree. And it really makes me think of just like you said, how can we criticize each other? And I'm not using criticize as a bad word. I'm saying in thinking critically about how humans act and react and thinking critically even about our culture. There's some people in every country's culture that will say, you cannot criticize our culture and our country, it is great, and by criticizing it, you're one of the enemies. And that lacks the ability to say, look, we can all improve. But at the same time, especially when a country like the U.S. or I would say European countries criticize other countries, especially countries that they had colonized, Throughout history, there's some real, real issues that come up where people don't want to listen, which is understandable, which is totally understandable. But at the same time, there has to be a dialogue about, say, truths or the ability to have conversations. And obviously, this is a very big question, but how do different cultures talk to each other when there is difficult cultural legacies that exist?
1: That's a good question. And a lot of this really stems from, and this is really, I mean, ethics is an epistemological set of problems. And what I mean by that is we base our moral judgments on what we believe to be right and wrong, true and false about the world. So I think a good example um, in recent times is the president of uh, Brazil, Bolsonaro. He has made a lot of comments about Brazil's use of the rainforest in the context of environmental damage. And he's made comments to say, who are the people in the world to criticize us for what we do with the rainforest? Our culture, or even our subculture, our political culture, this is what we've chosen to do. Don't talk to us about it. And we see that sort of microcosmically in the United States in our political debates. And I think that's it's a real problem in terms of where we see things going politically here at least in the past, prided ourselves on being a melting pot in the United States and and other Western countries feel the same way, I think. But what does that really mean? Can we really have a serious diversity of opinion and still get along? I think we've managed to do it for the most part without at least for the the last little while getting getting through it without uh, having to devolve into civil war, although recently people have been talking about something that extreme. And the political divisiveness that we see now I think is a consequence of people having this dilemma in their head where they want to say, yeah, we want to be tolerant, but we can only be tolerant up to a certain point. And it seems like the tolerance for allowing for relativism on big issues is wearing thin in the country.
0: It is an interesting conversation because in my opinion, of course, I have to preface everything with in my opinion, a lot of the conflicts we have today, of course, are completely made up. Much like culture, culture is made up. (laughs) We inherit the culture we're born into. Uh, We accept or reject aspects of culture. But when we live in a country, we still have to potentially abide by the norms of that culture. With the odd, and I describe it as odd, conversation about the conflicts in this country and, quote, civil war. My question for anybody who would say that is like, so do you mean a hot civil war or a cold civil war? And if it's hot, who's going to die? Because I'm pretty sure you don't want to go die for a difference of opinion about history.
1: That's a good point. I mean, the Cold Civil War, I think, has been going on forever. This has always been an issue. I mean, that's why we have this two-party system, which has just been fighting things out for a long time. And it's not it's just been ideological. But as we saw with January 6th, right, we got a little bit closer to the hot side that unnerved people, understandably.
0: It does, it does. And I would only hope that Americans and well, everybody on this planet would read the history of every country. And to see that almost every country has had hot civil wars, we had a hot civil war back in, you know, 1860, 61 65. And those were over, of course, legitimate ideas. But at the end of the day, like any civil war, it could have been avoided if the people in the room would have talked to each other. And it's not to reduce everything but down to talking, but it goes on to one of my own beliefs is all war is avoidable. It's only egos that get in the way. And so today we're speaking with Dr. James Lenvey, and we'll be right back after a short break. At American Public University, we believe that higher education can unlock higher purpose. So we offer 200 modern programs for those who want to make a difference. And we believe education must adapt to students' needs. That's why we've made it accessible through online classes and flexible with monthly program starts. American Public University. Within reach, without limits. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we're back with James Linvey. And James, did you want to say something about a comment I made?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to kind of back up to the notion that moral rules and maybe cultural rules are made up. And I mean, I think that's true, but maybe not totally in the sense that if we talk about going back to the discussion about legal versus moral, it's made up, yes, that stealing is wrong. And it's made up that maybe murder, unjustified killing is wrong. But it's also that there are these practical benefits to these things that make them so they're not just ideological persuasions or something. There are things that we need in life to have a society to get by. So I understand the idea that they're made up, so let's not get so bent out of shape about these things, right? Uh, But they're not necessarily, I mean, they're, you know, something like the unjustness of stealing or killing is ingrained in our nature, whether that's endowed by God or whether a product of evolution or whatever. That stuff's real, I think. And it's something that You know, we're talking about issues that are really important to people. And if we're talking about even how's tax money going to be used and who's running the country and what sort of agenda do they have, these aren't just political ideas. These are ideas that affect people every day and people get understandably sort of upset about these things. And it just seems at certain points through history, we've seen the upset boil over and Maybe we had a little bit of that on January 6th and things calmed down, but I don't know that it cannot happen
0: again. Oh, of course. Unfortunately, if history is our guide, it could always happen. And we, as the people <laughs> alive and hopefully guiding a safe and prosperous future, will avoid that. Because if there's one thing that is a known is when a hot war occurs, all rules fly out the window. And... The good intentions fly out the window because war kind of reduces everything to a brutality that people can't control. You know, that's always one of the funny things about war and people plan and do all these things and then war occurs. And then I'll say, and this is not scientific, but the more the base instincts of human nature come out. And I'll say, not the best of us per se win wars.
1: Yeah, that's, that's very possible. Discussing that in class today, um, we were talking about another ethical theory, which is utilitarianism and how that may have been used to justify a number of major events in the history of war, such as the bombing of Japan during World War II. And good intentions are, are great, but often we don't make the best decisions in spite of those.
0: Oh, agreed. And you can see, easily see how utilitarianism, which logically can make sense... Could have contributed to the Holodomor, the horrible lack of food in Ukraine that the Soviet Union essentially self-created. It's hard to know how the Soviets thought of certain aspects, but they murdered millions of their own people. And they probably thought, man, this is logical. We're just doing what we have to do. And that is so horrible that it's even hard to describe.
1: Right. And clearly there was not used an appeal to moral relativism. It was clearly this idea that there's an objective right and wrong. We're going to enforce it on other people. And that, of course, is problematic also. So there's no real easy answer here in terms of is this black and white. Do you want to be just a relativist? Do you want to be an objectivist? Seems like there's room for both, but I still think there in some ways it's an intractable dilemma. Another thing I was thinking about earlier as we were talking former President Obama used to talk about democracy as being this great experiment. And he was always kind of reinforcing this idea that we need to have open civic, civil dialogue with one another. And you know, initially I I thought, yeah, that sounds good. And as things went on and I started teaching more classes like this and thinking about it, it seems a little bit too idealistic because it's nice to say, yeah, we can agree to disagree but can we really do that on big issues? Is it enough to say, I understand that you come from another place. I really want to tolerate your perspective. I want to be understanding. I want to have empathy. But now in whatever way, depends on what topic we're talking about, this is affecting my life personally. There's a number of ways that could be the case. Abortion's kind of a funny situation in in terms of the way that plays out, because that doesn't necessarily affect people who are themselves against Abortion, the act itself, but you know, some people may say, "Well, look, I don't want my tax dollars going to fund abortions." For example, and so if we are talking about those kinds of life and death issues, it's not so easy to just kind of say, "Well, come over and let's have a beer and talk about these things and and be civil about it." Um, It would be
0: nice if it was that case, but that's just not the real world. Abortion is tough, and we're seeing that play out in front of us: uh, people's opinions about abortion. And I would say, if there are policies and our rules that are going to be more restrictive with abortions that are implemented in various states, or some states which are de facto it's illegal, I would then ask those states, do they have a robust ability to then help young mothers who have those children who maybe come from low SES? Because if you're making abortion illegal and then you're not providing help for these people, what is going on here? Because you're not helping children then. And I don't know if that makes sense, but.
1: <laughs> no, it does. It's just, I think it really points to the notion that there are really hard and fast limits that people set on the amount that they can tolerate. And again, going back to this idea of a melting pot, we want to have a difference. We want to have a, a, an environment where there's a difference or a variety of opinions. And that seems to be really productive for a lot of different things, maybe for our economy and for technological You know, advances where we have a lot of different kinds of minds coming together and different perspectives and all that stuff's great, but culturally, can we do that? Can we really make that work? And I think we've kind of been stumbling along making it work, but under the surface, there's going to be resentment. There's going to be, especially when you have in a democratic setup, there's people who don't have their representatives in power and they're not getting what they want and they're kind of festering and getting upset and then they're going to rise up and then maybe the power will sway during the next election and that seems to kind of maybe placate people enough you know you get four years and then well we'll give you four years and we'll switch it up and then you don't get too upset over that period of time but it's sustainable we've sustained it for a while now but it does seem a little bit as though we're heading in a direction that there's just a lot of frustrations not helped I'm sure by social media
0: Right. No. And I think social media and the cable networks do nothing to help because they are driven by market forces and they are driven by profits. And so the goal of those conversations that occur on social media and cable are divisive. And they're to, you know, if you're on the right or the left, they're saying, my opinion is right. My opinion is right. And the people that tune in then go into these echo chambers that just reinforce what they already believe in their biases. And so the next question really ties to what we were talking about. Does moral relativism tie to metaphysical and scientific relativism?
1: Yeah, it's just a little side point that's that's kind of interesting where this kind of notion comes from. How would we even base an idea that there are absolute moral rules that everybody needs to follow? Because we all have them. Whether or not we think that animal abuse is wrong You know, nobody should ever engage in that sort of thing as tolerant as I am with everything else. Maybe that's where I draw the line. I I cannot stand to see a dog that's not taken care of properly. Whatever else I think, I'm just going to draw the line in the sand there. And we all have that. So we all do have this conception of objective moral rules and it kind of ties to this idea of whether or not there is an objective reality out there. We use the terms realism and anti-realism to talk about these moral concepts. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that metaphysics is useful to study. Some people will say, well, why do we even care about asking a question like, do we live in a simulation? Is reality real? Well, okay. I mean, that might not sound like the most practical sort of question, but here we can see where it does matter because it would be a way to think about whether or not it's even possible for there to be objective rules that are not just dependent on the experiencer, that there's something out there greater, wherever that source of that is.
0: And that totally makes sense. And it makes me think of theological relativism. If you're talking to someone whom has a great faith in whatever (laughs) their faith is, they will view and truly believe that those rules are absolute. Now, We can, of course, talk about relativism because um, different religions have different views on different things. And (laughs) between different denominations, they're going to have different views on different things. But when you talk to some people, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, they view their moral rules as handed down from God. And now, do you view this as one of those things that creates a conflict within culture?
1: Certainly. It's historically been a problem when you say, look, we have a direct connection with this objective reality that cannot be argued with, and then somebody comes and says, no, I got that too. And then the third person, well, I have one of those as well. Okay. Now now what are we going to do with these three things? One thing we could do is to say, well, let's just not think of these as objective. Let's think of these as maybe good explanations, but not the only explanations. But that's really hard to do because again, this also ties to the issue of politics. Even though we want to stay open and we want to be flexible and we want to be tolerant, it's also part of human psychology to have to take a stand and to believe in something firmly. And it's hard to know when we're believing in something firmly based on good data and rational arguments or when we're just kind of digging in our heels because we don't want to think differently. And all of these things make for just kind of a a constellation of little dilemmas that make our moral interactions
0: really difficult. Well said. And this brings me back to the last question is, what are some attitudes about relativism? So are students flexible, or do you find that their moral views are pretty set?
1: That's a good question. You know, the best that I think I can do in the context of students who come in real quick, take a brief college course in ethics, is just to get them exposed to this dilemma itself, and to get them to reflect about this idea that they may themselves hold conflicting views. And so a lot of students will say, Yeah, certainly some things are right and wrong, but everybody believes differently. And even a statement like that is itself contradictory, right? Because you're saying on one hand, some things are objective, they're absolute, and on the other hand, uh, you know, it varies from person to person. People in general, young people want to be tolerant. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to fight. And that's great. But they are also going to want to fight for things that they really believe in. And when are they going to decide that they've had enough or they're at a point? when there's something they just cannot tolerate. So there's this little paradox of tolerance that comes up with relativism, which is if you're gonna to tolerate, you can't put a limit on it. Otherwise you've devolved into absolutism. And if you're gonna to tolerate everything, do you have to tolerate intolerance as well? And now with this problem, we've seen kind of the rise of cancel culture is a good example of this becoming a practical issue.
0: Oh, those are great comments because cancel culture if you read about it depending on your news source it is a huge problem and if you're on Twitter it could be a huge problem but at the same time if you're on Twitter those folks who are tweeting don't represent all of America you know it's a very specific population that actually participates and actually tweets versus as they describe on social media just lurk and especially on social media you get Rampant, and I always like to use this phrase, the illusion of explanatory depth, where people just talk about stuff that they really don't know a lot about, but they say it with such passion. And it's not that it's a bad thing to talk about, to have a passion about things, but do your research. But that is an issue by itself is, do people have good research skills? And it's not, and I'm not criticizing because a lot of people, we have blind spots to our ability to research. (laughs)
1: You know, when I teach ethics, I, I would like to spend even more time than I do on epistemology and just talking about what it means to know something, what it means to have good evidence, because we don't believe things really in a bubble, have moral beliefs or preferences in a bubble. We believe those things. We have moral views based on how we interpret facts about the world. So going back to abortion again, how do you perceive a fetus? How do you perceive a human life? And all kinds of arguments for and against abortion have to do with epistemological questions about the nature of the fetus. Is it or is it not in fact a person? Okay, now you're going to take that actual, at least in your view, fact about the world, and that's what's going to inform your moral position on it. We can't really divorce those things at all, and this illusion of explanatory depth is is a good example. because it's true people often don't know as much as they think they do you've probably heard of the dunning kruger effect where the less you know the more confident you tend to be about uh, your opinion opinion on it and so yeah i mean if if all of our moral opinions are coming from bad data bad information where do we expect to end up and then we're debating each other as though we know for sure that all of these things are true about the world and then our moral opinions based on that have to be equally true we just kind of end up spiraling out of control in some of these debates actually.
0: No, it's true, and I do understand how it can be very disheartening because when you watch our leaders and you just scratch your head sometimes on where they're going, what they're talking about, what their opinion is, uh, honestly, (laughs) who's funding them. But at the same time, I always like to say this, about 99% of all the conversations I've had with people in my local area have been super positive. If they're liberal, if they're conservative, if they're religious, if they're atheist, you know, it's just great conversations. So it's really interesting where the conflict really arises, it seems, at the national level when people are talking about power. Like you were saying, when decisions are made and it affects real people, that's when people start getting uneasy. I'm always positive that things will work out, it's not perfect, and I think even certain things that, not the form of government, but the structure and the different aspects of any government should be looked at and reviewed, and we should question, should we continue with X, Y, and Z? Should we alter it? Right, and that should is really what becomes problematic, because
1: if we go back to the idea of relativism, a big criticism of it is that we can't, from a relativistic point of view, ever talk about should or ought or change or progress because basically, if you want to reduce it to this most simple statement, it is what it is. Whatever the culture practices, is, whatever's going on, whatever people deem appropriate, that's what it is. We got to tolerate it and we stop there. But that doesn't really do much for society, even though it seems on the surface that it can prevent a lot of bickering, fighting, maybe even war. It's just really not a productive position, ultimately.
0: And from that perspective, could you say that pre-industrial societies lived in that? In the sense that the morality that guided peoples uh, were intact for, say, hundreds of years with little change versus today with the industrial revolution, of course, starting quite a while ago, and people's uh, constantly shifting around, we're having to face different people. So, kind of that, like you said, the absolute moral relativism isn't possible anymore. Is that the right statement or a wrong statement?
1: So, we have a TED talk that we, in our APUS critical thinking course by uh, Ruth Chang about what she calls post-enlightenment creatures, and she says that we live in this world now where we think we can solve all of our problems with science and math. and Obviously we see that kind of exhibiting itself in in the way that um, educational standards and goals are being geared nowadays. But I think the idea is that we have gone from a more objective, and yeah, I mean this ties probably to the decline in popularity of organized religion, that people can make their own decisions. This was As you mentioned, the kind of industrial revolution, not far from that removed was the philosophical movement of existentialism. And that kind of brought this idea that, okay, if we're going to get largely an atheistic perspective, if we're going to say that God doesn't make all the decisions in our lives, if we're going to do this ourselves, if we can we're enlightened creatures now. We we can figure this stuff out for ourselves. Look at what we can do with science and we're, we're in control. We can be in control. That's going to kind of lead us to more of a relativistic viewpoint overall, because we've taken away that foundation of God or religion as the source of objective truth. And then there you have your first existential crisis.
0: That's good. And I think people have been having existential crises for (laughs) hundreds of years. I think it's it's not giving peoples of the past any due credit to say that they didn't either people hundreds or thousands of years ago also had existential crises uh similar or different and so today we're speaking with uh, james Lenve. Uh, great great conversation any last words
1: well you know we covered a lot of uh space here i guess my concern uh, if students are listening to this eventually um and you end up taking a an ethics course keep an open mind to The dilemma that's raised by uh, relativism versus objectivism, and and try to self-reflect on how you might display that in your own view of the world, and then how you criticize or interact with other people based on that.
0: Excellent. And today we're speaking with James Lenvey about moral relativism. My name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and thank you for listening. For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU, American Public University.